Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk. So at the time I am recording this, there has been a lot of conversation going on about LGBTQ plus youth, particularly in Florida and Texas with the bills that are attempting to be passed. At the time this episode launches, who knows what the outcome will be, but the reality is anti-LGBTQ plus bills are likely not going anywhere. These weren't the first and they won't be the last. Just last year, my state of South Carolina attempted to pass a bill where if a minor came out in school as a gender different than their sex assigned at birth, the school personnel were required to report it. It did not pass, but I bring this up to show that there are plenty of these bills being proposed, whether they pass or not. In 2021, I believe 21 states in total introduced bills to deny gender-affirming medical care to transgender youth. So specifically, given the recent events, I want to talk about Texas. So Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, wrote a letter on February 22nd, 2022, to the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, in which he states, and I quote, so-called sex change procedures constitute child abuse under Texas law, end quote. He writes, quote, It is already against the law to subject Texas children to a wide variety of elective procedures for gender transitioning, including reassignment surgeries that can cause sterilization, mastectomies, removal of otherwise healthy body parts, and administration of puberty-blocking drugs or supraphysiologic doses of testosterone or estrogen, end quote. He then goes on to state that, quote, Texas law imposes reporting requirements upon licensed professionals who have direct contact with children who may be subject to such abuse, including doctors, nurses, and teachers, and provide criminal penalties for failure to report such child abuse, end quote. And, quote, Texas law also imposes a duty on DFPS to investigate the parents of a child who is subjected to these abusive gender transitioning procedures and on other state agencies to investigate licensed facilities where such procedures may occur, end quote. As a psychologist who works with a number of transgender youth, some who are on hormones, some who are on puberty blockers, some who have only socially transitioned, and none of whom have had gender-affirming surgery, I wanted to make a podcast episode on what gender-affirming care actually is and challenge some of the misconceptions surrounding gender-affirming care. Although I brought 
Abbott's letter into this episode and will likely be referring back to it. The intention of this episode is not to be political. I am not a politician and therefore am staying in my lane and talking about what is within my scope of knowledge and referring to what the scientific literature has to say about gender affirming care. My goal for this episode is to provide education on gender-affirming care and to clarify misconceptions. After presenting the research, people are free to draw their own conclusions. But I wanted to bring this up in light of the current political situations (laughs) going on, and especially with Abbott's letter, because a lot of what I take away from that is a misunderstanding of what gender affirming care is and using fear mongering, um, the explicit use of talking about gender affirming surgeries in his letter shows one, the lack of knowledge of what goes into getting gender affirming surgeries and what ages individuals are getting gender affirming surgeries. And I also believe it's intentional to kind of set outrage around this misconception that we're doing surgery on like six-year-olds or 12-year-olds, which is not the case. So I also want to make the disclaimer that as a cisgender woman, meaning my sex assigned at birth is female and I identify as female, I do not have lived experience being on the receiving end of gender-affirming care. However, it is something I provide on a daily basis to my patients, and I felt it is an important topic to discuss. So what is gender-affirming care? At its core, gender-affirming care is medical and psychosocial health care designed to affirm individuals' gender identities. Gender-affirming medical care can range from routine preventative health care to hormone replacement, surgery, or other interventions. Mental health services, which is also gender-affirming care, may include therapy, psychiatric medication, and letter writing. Gender-affirming care affirms diversity in gender identity and assists individuals in defining, exploring, and actualizing their gender identity, allowing for exploration without judgments or assumptions. Just because a youth is receiving gender-affirming care does not mean all youth will or desire to undergo medical intervention. Gender-affirming care is individualized to the patient and focuses on the needs of each individual by providing developmentally appropriate psychoeducation about gender and sexuality, guardian and family support, social interventions, and gender-affirming medical interventions. So I hope that right there um, clears up some misconceptions that gender-affirming care is simply hormones and surgery because it is not. Um, like I said, it's preventative health care. So, you know, your annual checkup um, for individuals who have a uterus and of our certain ages doing pap smears and things like that. It's also psychoeducation. And the next big section and probably the vast majority of this episode is going to be breaking down those gender affirming interventions. So the first intervention is psychoeducation. Now this is education for the patients and the guardians if the individual is a minor. This can range from things such as familiarity with terms, different options for transitions, risks and benefits of each of those options, resources available to the individuals such as healthcare providers, support groups, therapists, 
referrals to specialists, among other things. Psychoeducation is ongoing and is always communicated in a developmentally appropriate manner. The next uh, gender-affirming intervention I want to talk about is social transition. So socially transitioning can include using a new name and pronouns, expressing one's gender through clothing, hairstyles, makeup if desired, or engagement in activities that are more congruent with the child's gender. Um, Obviously, social transition also applies to adults and This applies across the board. I will be referring to a lot of child and youth interventions since that's what the bills um, that inspired this episode are about. Social interventions are considered reversible, meaning that if the individual's gender identity shifts in the futures, these decisions can be adapted or reversed. For example, if the child starts going by a different name and decides at a later point they no longer want to go by that name, they can go by their birth name or a different name. Same with pronouns. We can change our pronouns. We can change our gender expression. We can change our style of clothing, our haircut, things like that. And these are things, honestly, we all do already, regardless of our gender. Social interventions are often attempted in a stepwise manner. So for example, a child may try out a new name, pronouns, or way of dressing in the home or at their gender-affirming appointments before doing so in other environments, such as school. Social transition is also the first step for any gender-diverse individual. Um, Before hormones, before surgery, anything like that, individuals will socially transition. Social transition interventions have been found to lower rates of depression and anxiety in gender-diverse children. So I say this all the time when talking about suicide, specifically with LGBTQ individuals, but using someone's correct name and pronouns is suicide prevention. We know that affirming one's gender and sexual identity does have beneficial effects on their mental health, and I'll talk about that more later. So another uh, gender-affirming intervention may be puberty blockers, and this would be for children only. Adults do not go on puberty blockers. So pubertal suppression is also considered fully reversible. It allows for a pause on puberty for further development of gender identity and give children and families time to think about or plan for psychological, medical, developmental, social, and legal issues. So delaying puberty to promote physical development that is consistent with a child's gender identity is associated with better mental health comes mental health outcomes, improved functioning, and life satisfaction. So puberty blockers are given once a child has started puberty or has hit Tanner stage two. The puberty blockers used for gender diverse youth are the same that we use for precocious puberty. And I always like to bring that up because we already use puberty blockers for children. (laughs) Um, And so I've never heard anybody be against using puberty blockers for precocious puberty. So I always like to bring that up. So for gender diverse youth to start using pubertal blockers, a child must first show a long lasting and intense pattern of gender nonconformity or gender dysphoria. Obviously, this is if the purpose of using puberty blockers is for gender diverse youth. Have gender dysphoria that began or worsened at the time of puberty. 
address any psychological, medical, or social problems that could interfere with treatment, have entered the early stages of puberty, as I already stated, and provide informed consent. If the child has not reached the age of medical consent, parents or guardians must consent to the treatment and support the adolescent through the treatment process. If a youth decides to stop taking puberty blockers, puberty will resume. Just like many, or any, not many, any uh, medical intervention, there are potential side effects. So possible side effects of the treatment includes swelling at the injection site, weight gain, hot flashes, and headaches. Possible long-term effects may include uh, growth spurts impacting bone growth and density, um, impacts on future fertility, and this all will depend on when the puberty blockers are started. Another intervention that may be used during gender-affirming care is general tucking slash packing, binding, and padding. So um, general tucking, packing, binding, of the breast or padding are all reversible interventions that can lessen dysphoria before or rather than pursuing surgery because not all individuals who are gender diverse ever want to get surgery. So genital tucking is practiced by some transgender women and gender nonconforming individuals to minimize or hide the contour of their genitals, creating a flatter appearance. Packing refers to using a non-flesh penis and may be practiced by transgender males or non-conforming individuals. Binding refers to wearing tight clothing, bandages, or compression garments to flatten out your chest. There are specific binders that can be bought, which are safe to use if used correctly and can provide a flatter appearance than, say, someone wearing a sports bra. And then padding refers to the use of undergarments to create an appearance of larger breasts, hips, or buttocks. Hormones. So this is really one of the two main things that people think of when they think of gender affirming care. They think of hormones and surgery. So with regard to hormones, gender affirming hormone therapy allows the body to develop physical changes that align with a person's gender identity and is shown to significantly decrease gender dysphoria. So testosterone is given for transgender males and estrogen for transgender females. I will say some gender nonconforming or non-binary individuals also may choose to um, go on hormones. So youth prescribed hormones are carefully monitored by a specialized endocrinologist to ensure their safety and well-being. Current guidelines do not recommend the initiation of hormones until age 16. However, there are always exceptions. There are some teenagers who are under the age of 16 that do start hormones. However, I want to emphasize that guidelines do not recommend until 16 at current and therefore the majority of individuals going on hormones are ages 16 and above. Additionally, many physicians will require a letter from a mental health professional supporting the initiation of hormone treatment, particularly if the youth is under the age of 16. But even if the youth is 16 or 17, many physicians will require a letter. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about letters. Um, really, this is just to have... Um, a mental health professional, one, state that the individual um, either meets criteria for uh, gender dysphoria or is transgender, and two, that there's no mental health implications that would interfere with um, hormone treatment. 
Before the initiation of hormones, the patient and their guardians, if under the age of majority, are educated on the risks and benefits, side effects of initiation, expectations of treatment, effects that are reversible and irreversible, etc. And they have to show understanding of all these things before initiation. Next, I'm going to talk about surgeries because that's the other big thing that people just assume is all that gender-affirming care encompasses. So surgeries can include chest or breast reconstruction as well as genital surgeries. However, gender-affirming surgeries also include things such as a hysterectomy, facial feminizing procedures, uh, tracheal cartilage shaves, implants, and voice surgery. So... I would also like to point out, although particularly for the the generals, not um, all cis people are obviously, or many cis people are going to get those surgeries, things like a hysterectomy um, or even like breast reconstruction, uh, implants, etc. are all surgeries that surgeons perform all the time, regardless of gender. So most surgeons will not perform surgery until 18 or 21, depending on the surgery. I always say most surgeons because there have been some cases of individuals, particularly, and I've heard it only for this, but I'm sure there are exceptions, for trans masculine individuals under the age of 18 to get top surgery, the removal of the breasts. Um, Usually it's late teens. I am sure somebody listening could be like, oh, I know of this exception. But most surgeons will not perform surgery until the individual is an adult. Additionally, there may be other requirements such as being on hormones for a certain period of time or letters from medical professionals treating individuals supporting the gender-affirming surgery. Um, Like I mentioned a couple seconds ago about... um, There may be exceptions for individuals under the age of 18, for example, with chest surgery. Um, Those individuals obviously have to have guardian support. Um, They also tend to have to be stable with their mental health and show a consistent and persistent gender identity. The decision to undergo surgery as a minor are made by a multidisciplinary team of medical experts in conjunction with the older adolescent and their guardian. So surgery is just not happening willy-nilly. Even as an adult, the surgery is not happening happening willy-nilly. Transmasculine adolescents who have undergone chest surgery report significant relief in dysphoria and very rare regret. Okay, so I really just highlighted like two of the main things, hormone surgeries that people um, think is all gender affirming care is, as well as puberty blockers. I wanted to talk about some other things that people may not realize are gender affirming care. For example, birth control. For individuals assigned female at birth who no longer desire to have a period, whether it be due to them being transmasculine, non-binary, or another reason, individuals can be placed on birth control to lessen the frequency of or eliminate their period, which can aid in lessening dysphoria, particularly if they are not ready for, not on yet, or never desire to be on testosterone, which with time will also eventually eliminate a person's period. Another gender-affirming procedure is laser hair removal. Just like birth control is not solely a trans or gender non-conforming intervention, 
as many cis women regularly take birth control. Laser hair removal is another intervention that anyone regardless of gender may engage in, but for gender diverse individuals, it can be very affirming, particularly for trans feminine women who don't want to shave their face or other body parts. It can be very affirming. Voice modification is another aspect of gender-affirming care. So speech therapy can help meet the needs of the transitioning individual to modify their voice, to align more with their gender identity. This can include habitual speaking, pitch, resonance, inflection, rate of speech, volume, intensity, articulation, pragmatics, and nonverbal communication. I do want to note, with the initiation of and continued use of hormone replacement therapy, voice changes do occur. However, this is still an option for those who do not desire to do hormone replacement therapy or in conjunction with hormones. Additionally, if voice therapy and hormones are not enough to achieve the desired voice outcome, vocal cord surgery can be considered. Another aspect of gender-affirming care is fertility preservation. So some individuals may choose to preserve their eggs or sperm via egg banking or sperm banking so that if they desire to have biological children later in life, that is an option for them. Obviously, this is psych talk. I'm a psychologist, so I also want to talk about mental health care, which is part of gender affirming care. Gender diverse individuals may have specific needs for mental health care that focuses on the exploration of their gender identity, coming out, social transition, readiness for initiation of puberty blockers, hormones, surgery, family support, etc. These individuals may also just need general mental health support for depression, anxiety, bullying, suicidal thoughts, family stress, or whatever else they may come to therapy for that are not specific to their gender identity or gender related care. I have a handful of individuals on my caseload that are transgender or non-binary and none of what we address in therapy is related to their gender identity because that is not what they are coming in for. It is still an affirming space, but that is not the focus of therapy. Many transgender individuals will get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria from a mental health professional. However, gender dysphoria is not the same as being transgender, and not all trans individuals experience gender dysphoria. Now, I know people tend to use the argument that being transgender is a mental illness because currently gender dysphoria is classified in the DSM-5 as a mental health condition. However, the ICD-11, which is the International Classification for Diseases, has moved gender incongruence, which is their term for gender dysphoria, from the mental health disorder section to the conditions related to sexual health section. I also want to clarify that gender dysphoria refers to the distress an individual feels related to the incongruence between their sex assigned at birth and gender identity, not the incongruence in self, hence the difference between gender dysphoria, and being transgender. Additionally, unfortunately, because there still is a lot of gatekeeping when it comes to gender-affirming care, specifically medical interventions, many insurance companies, physicians, and surgeons require a diagnosis of gender dysphoria for care. Mental health care can also help assess the individual's mental state outside of any distress relating to their gender identity to determine their understanding of medical intervention, if their mental health will interfere with any compliance to treatment. So an example of this would be their depression is so severe it would be disruptive to their compliance with hormone replacement therapy. 
Um, so we would need to address the um, barriers and depression or make sure it's being addressed in concurrence with hormone replacement therapy, as well as write letters for hormone replacement therapy and surgery if necessary. I just wanted to make some general comments about gender affirming care as I just spent a lot of time talking about all the different interventions and I'm sure there's some I missed that fall under what gender affirming care is. So the World Professional Association for Transgender Health provides guidelines through their standards of care and I will link this in the show notes in case anyone is interested. Providers following these ethical guidelines are obliged to facilitate and encourage family support and involvement. All medical interventions for any child under the age of 18 require parental consent, as well as the child's assent. I will note that the age of minor can consent to medical treatment varies from state to state. So for example, in my state of South Carolina, minors can consent to their own medical and mental health care with the exception of surgery at age 16. However, I will say that the physicians I know that provide hormone therapy to transgender youth do require parents' consent to the treatment as well, even if the minor is 16 or 17, going back to that family support and involvement. It is also recommended that adolescents and their guardians be involved in psychological care to help them best understand the benefits, risks, and permanent effects of gender-affirming interventions. Additionally, I just want to highlight that multiple medical groups, including the American Medical Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, the Endocrine Society, Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the American Psychiatric Association, endorse gender-affirming care for gender-diverse youth and affirm it as evidence-based care. So you know I love research if you've listened to any of my podcast episodes. So I want to dive into what the research says. And this is obviously just scratching the surface, but I'm picking up on overall themes. So research demonstrates that gender-affirming care greatly improves the mental health and overall well-being of gender-diverse, transgender, and non-binary individuals, including children and adolescents. It is well-documented that gender-diverse adolescents and young adults experience anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation at much higher rates than their cisgender peers. Additionally, numerous research studies have found that gender-affirming care leads to improved mental health among gender-diverse youth. A 2020 study by Sorbara and colleagues found that among gender-diverse youth, those receiving gender-affirming medical care at a younger age, which in their study was defined by under the age of 15, had better mental health outcomes than those receiving gender-affirming care after the age of 15, including higher rates of depression, self-harm, suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts, and use of psychotropic medications. Additionally, a 2022 study by Tordoff and colleagues found among transgender and non-binary youth ages 13 to 20, gender-affirming care, which included puberty blockers and hormones, was associated with a 60% lower odds of moderate or severe depression and a 73% lower odds of suicidality at 12-month follow-up. Beyond youth specifically, gender-affirming surgery is associated with lower odds of psychological distress, substance use, and suicidal ideation compared to transgender and gender non-conforming individuals who have not received gender-affirming care. So in the last little bit of this podcast episode, I want to address some common misconceptions about gender-affirming care, being transgender etc. I will not touch on all the misconceptions. I just wanted to pick a few that I hear most frequently. So 
First, being transgender is a mental illness. So I already addressed this earlier, but being transgender is not a mental illness. Gender dysphoria is currently classified as such as in the DSM-5, but like I highlighted, it's not in the ICD-11. Yet gender dysphoria and being transgender are not synonymous. Also, I would like to say that even if it was a mental illness, the treatment for such is gender-affirming care as it has been shown over and over and over in the research that affirming an individual's gender identity mitigates many of the negative effects of gender dysphoria, as well as enhances overall psychosocial well-being. Another misconception I hear a lot is that kids are too young to know their gender. This one always gets me because it shows a lack of understanding of gender identity development. So around age two, Children become aware of the physical differences between boys and girls. By their third birthday, most children can easily label themselves either a boy or a girl. And by age four, most children have a stable sense of their gender identity. Now, this does not mean that all gender diverse individuals will assert this at age four or recognize it this early, but it also means that children do have the cognitive ability to assert their gender from a young age. I always want to, but I never do pose the question when I hear this misconception. Do you ever question if a cisgender child knows their gender at a young age? The answer is no. Like when a biological girl says that she is a girl, we don't question it. So why do we question if that same biological girl consistently states he is a boy? The next thing I hear a lot along the same vein is kids are too young to make these life-changing decisions. Hopefully, if you've gotten this far in the episode, if you did not know before, you know now that the vast majority of transgender children only socially transition, which is completely reversible. We are not allowing six-year-olds to get surgery. (laughs) Even if the child gets put on puberty blockers, once they are off puberty blockers, they go through puberty. It is reversible. With regard to hormones, like I said earlier, current guidelines recommend waiting until 16, although there are always some exceptions. And even with the initiation of hormones, the majority of side effects are reversible if the individual decides to stop taking them, depending on how long the individual has been on hormones. So for listener knowledge, for testosterone, the side effects that are not reversible include genital growth, facial hair growth, voice changes, and male pattern baldness. For estrogen, the side effects that are not reversible include breast growth and reduced or absent fertility. Additionally, I always once again desire to, but then don't actually pose the question, if children are too young to make these life-changing decisions, then what age are they able to make these life-changing decisions? Is it 18 because then they would legally be adult? Like, what is the difference between a teen who is 17 years, 364 days, and a teen who is 18 years, zero days, other than the law now says they're an adult? Additionally, the frontal lobe is not fully developed until age 25. So then I have seen this on the internet. People say, well, then we'll wait till 25. But if we wait until 25 to make medical decisions, are we going to stop letting People under 25 join the military, get tattoos, go to college, move across the country, get married, have kids, etc. Because those are also all life-changing decisions as well. Just some food for thought. Um, One thing I hear a lot, another misconception, is people will regret transitioning. So a lot of people argue this, particularly in youth, 
based on a 2013 study by Stensma and colleagues. So in this study, 127 adolescents were referred for gender dysphoria to a clinic in childhood and then followed up in adolescence. So the study found that 80 of the 127 children, which was 63%, desisted, which means they basically like grew out, quote unquote, of their gender diversity by ages 15 or 16. However, there's a lot of issues with how this study was done. Um, one of the biggest ones being that the research de- researchers defined anyone who did not return to their clinic as desisting which was 28 participants, which you cannot do in clinical research. If anybody has done research (laughs) before, you have to run analyses based on the responses you get, not just assign non-responders to a category. So that was a first big flaw. Additionally, 38 of the 127 kids were originally designated as, quote, sub-threshold, for at the time gender identity disorder, which is now gender dysphoria, meaning they did not even meet the full criteria for official diagnosis. The study did find that transgender children that were older, their sex assigned at birth was female, and reported more intense gender dysphoria were more likely to be transgender at follow-up compared to younger children, natal boys, and those with less pronounced gender dysphoric traits. So more broadly speaking, the idea that children grow out of their transgender identity has been vastly overblown, and many researchers don't don't think research on desistance is valid. So one main reason for this is that the criteria for gender dysphoria, which was previously called gender identity disorder, like I just stated, was less stringent in the um, past and earlier studies. So any study published before the DSM-5 came out in 2013, including the study I just referenced, included children who today would not be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, such as individuals that were just experimenting with different ways of expressing their gender, um, which gender expression is different than gender identity. Like we think of like tomboys growing up, especially I feel like that was a big thing in the 90s. So tomboys expressed their gender in a more masculine way, but their gender identity was still female. But in previous studies prior to 2013, those individuals may have been included as having, quote, gender identity disorder. So in healthcare, we really look for three things, insistence, persistence, and consistence. So the child insists that they are a certain gender. This is insistence persists over time, and it is consistent across situations. I do want to acknowledge that some people do detransition, which is a different concept than desistance and basically refers to the individual who has already transitioned, whether socially or medically, and returns to live as their sex assigned at birth. I always like to keep this podcast as objective as possible, so I do want to share some research on detransitioning. So a 2021 study by Trubin and colleagues examined detransitioning among 27,715 transgender and gender diverse adults in the United States. Turbin and colleagues found that 2,242, which was about 13.1% of the participants, reported a history of detransitioning. So of those who detransitioned, 82.5% reported at least one external driving factors. Commonly endorsed external factors included pressure from family and societal stigma. History of detransition was associated with male sex assigned at birth, non-binary gender identity, bisexual sexual orientation, and having an unsupportive family. 
15.9% of respondents reported at least one internal driving factor, including fluctuations in or uncertainty regarding their gender. I do want to note that though detransitioning does not equate to regret, nor does it mean these individuals underwent surgery or medical intervention. In fact, of those who did indicate they detransitioned in this study, 50.2% had gender-affirming hormone therapy and only 16.5% had gender-affirming surgery. This is compared to 75.7% and 33.8% respectively of individuals who never detransitioned. Also, those who have detransition have identities just as valid as those who do not ever detransition. And just because some individuals detransition does not mean we should further limit care from transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. Regarding regret specifically, a 2021 systematic review by Bustos and colleagues of 27 different studies totaling 7,928 transgender patients who underwent any type of gender-affirming surgery found that surgical regret was 1%. The most common reason for regret was difficulty or dissatisfaction or acceptance of life with their new gender role, with less prevalent reasons being failure, quote, of surgery to achieve their surgical goals or an aesthetic or psychological level. Just for a fun comparison, a 2013 study by Zong and colleagues found that 40% of women who underwent breast reconstruction regretted their decision. Although the two are not comparable at all, I use this example to show that presumably cisgender individuals who get cosmetic surgery have higher rates of regret than transgender individuals seeking gender-affirming surgery, yet I tend to not hear the same outrage regarding um, decision regret when it's more cosmetic surgery among cisgender people. Another misconception I hear frequently is you can't change your sex. So nobody is saying people are changing their sex. And this comes down to a lack of understanding about the differences between sex and gender. So sex refers to biological and physiological characteristics of males and females, such as reproductive organs, chromosomes, etc. Gender refers to the socially constructed characteristics of women and men, such as norms, roles, and relationships of and between groups of women and men. It also varies from society to society and can be changed. I also want it to be noted that until 1960, when intersex children were born, parents and doctors made their best guess decision and and assigned a child a gender. So adults were choosing the gender for their child whose sex characteristics did not fall within the binary and the child underwent surgery. Um, another misconception, there are only two genders. So first of all, there are not even only two sexes. We often think of biological sex as either XX for female or XY for male. And yes, the majority of humans do fall within this binary. However, genetics is more complicated than that. And sex is determined by more than just chromosomes. And as I defined a few moments ago, sex and gender are different. Although for the majority of people, their biological sex and gender identity align, this is not the case for all individuals. Gender is not restricted by the limitations of our bodies and physiology, and therefore there are many ways genders can be expressed. Another thing I hear all the time is it is the liberal agenda slash trans people didn't exist before recently. I'm not trying to get political, but we hear this one a lot. I am not even really sure what the agenda of transgender people are other than trying to exist in the world without being harmed and murdered and simply just trying to be acknowledged as valid. 
As for the latter part, though, that transgender people didn't exist before recently, transgender and non-binary individuals have been around for centuries in cultures and histories documented back to 5000 BC. So for example, in ancient Greece, sometime from 200 to 300 BC, some gods were worshipped by galley priests who wore feminine attire and identified as women. In South Asia, at least Eight gender-expansive identities are known and have been documented throughout history, with the most well-known being hijra, which means third gender. Indigenous communities in North America use the term two-spirit to describe individuals not considered men or women, and that is just scratching the surface of transgender identities. The last one I'm going to touch on, and I don't have science to back this up, and I know it can be considered controversial, particularly because it's my opinion, so I will make it brief, is that God made you male or female, or it's against the Bible, or it's against God to be transgender. First of all, not everyone believes in God, and for those who do believe in God, not everyone believes in the same God. Second, every time I have seen this online, I have asked because i have a very bad habit of getting into arguments with people on social media ask someone to point me to where in the bible it says being transgender is wrong and i have never been able to get a response from someone third my answer is that god has actually made this person transgender but on a more serious note i'm unsure why so many people insert their religious beliefs or use religion as a rationale for situations that do not involve them. Religion can be a wonderful thing for those who do believe, but unless a transgender person specifically asks what your religion says about being transgender, it's best to not insert your opinion. So like I said, I'm sure there are other misconceptions I could cover as well as other aspects of gender-affirming care, but I hope this was a good overview and gave you insights on what gender-affirming care actually entails and cleared up some misconceptions. If you have further questions, I welcome respectful and open conversations. The intent of this episode was not necessarily to change people's minds or beliefs, but rather to provide further education so they can develop a more informed opinion. Also, like I said at the beginning of this episode, I am a cisgender woman, so I have not lived this experience of being a transgender individual, of receiving gender-affirming care, Um, but so I will never claim that I know it all because I don't, and I will never know it all because I do not have that lived experience, but as somebody that works with transgender youth and has done a lot of continuing education on it, I hope um, I did talking about this justice and um, as always welcome any feedback, um, respectful feedback, but especially if you are transgender or gender nonconforming listening to this and if I ever misspoke or anything, please give me feedback um, as I always continue to learn and grow. So thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk, and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.